0: Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to part two of D is for Dogma. In part one, we talked a little bit about the word, what it means, and how it's used. And I said at the end of part one that we were going to have to do a little bit of historical theology, a little bit of church history here. And I want you to picture in your head a tree that rises uh, from the earth with a trunk and then has branches um, breaking off from it. That tree is Christendom, and I use that word loosely. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, evangelicalism, and and it certainly doesn't necessarily mean fundamentalism. It just means Christendom, anything that considers itself Christian. So what we've got to do is start at the bottom with the trunk, and the trunk is the apostolic um, era, the first, let's say, three centuries of the Christian church. When there really isn't an organization, there are individual congregations All over the Roman Empire. Uh, Some of them had a connection with each each other. The churches in Galatia had a connection with each other because of their geographical proximity. We think that there was more than one congregation in Rome. They undoubtedly had a connection with each other because of their geographical proximity. But other than that, there was no formal organization. Okay, I got to tell you about a Roman emperor, emperor named Constantine. Constantine was the uh, emperor of Rome in the 300s, in the very early 300s. One of his problems was he didn't like Rome. I'm told, I've read because we've talked about traveling to Rome, it is beastly hot in Rome during the summer. It's hot and humid and sticky and nobody likes being there, including the Roman emperor, Constantine. So he went on a trip, uh, packed his bags and, and bought one of those unlimited bus tickets, and went around looking for a place to have a summer capital, and he settled on a city over in what we now call Turkey, in very western Turkey. It was originally called Byzantium. Um, In his day, it it was called Byzantium. He renamed it. He basically kind of leveled it and rebuilt it like he liked it. It was right on the water, so you got cool breezes off of the water, and he tore down ugly buildings and put up new buildings and he called it Constantinople. How about that, huh? His name was Constantine, and he renamed it Constantinople. Um, A little bit of hubris there, maybe. Now, that same city is called Istanbul. Um, And and it's, I'm told, and I've read, it's a fascinating place to go, but never mind. What happened was that the Emperor Constantine had a capital in Rome, and then an eastern capital, way over in the east in, in Turkey, called Constantinople. Now, the next thing to know about Emperor Constantine is that when, um, when he was uh, attacking a particular city, and, uh, and uh, there's, some, there's some ambiguity about which city he was attacking, but it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, th- they rested up the night before. He got up in the morning, and he, was, uh, he had his army behind him, and he was ready to attack this city. And he looked and saw a vision. And in the vision, up above the city, um, was, uh, uh, was Christ. And underneath it, it, it there was like, I don't know, a subscript or a, a signboard or something that said, in this name, conquer. And he went into battle, and he was victorious, and he realized that he was given that victory by Christ. Now, obviously, I think a lot of this is apocryphal, right? I, I, I think maybe Constantine had his press guys make up this. But the point is, that Constantine seems to have had a genuine conversion. And these are the circumstances which he ascribes his conversion. Um, interesting story, again, true or not, it doesn't matter. Constantine became a believer. Everything changed overnight. Uh, the Roman religious system was polytheistic, huh? They had the Roman pantheon. they It's just a mess, it was a total mess. You know all about that, right? And Christianity was an illegal religion because it said there's one king and that king is Jesus and he's the only one we will submit to. That's why you got all those battles with lions in the Colosseum and all that kind of stuff. Well, Constantine overnight flipped everything on its head and he said all of those other religions that as Romans we've practiced for, for centuries, those are now illegal and the only legal religion is Christianity. And Constantine says, now, the first thing we've got to do is we've got, to, they got this thing called the, we now. We have this thing called the Bible. We got to get that out. He, he had his professional scribes get copies of the Bible. Uh, now, they, the Old Testament was not a problem. That was already stable. But to gather the New Testament and, and make um, addition, uh, have them copy this and spread these copies. And so Again, and you understand there's some hyperbole here, but overnight the Bible was spread throughout the Roman Empire and and he encouraged people to read it. And he started, first of all, he gave the churches, all these local churches, he gave them tax advantages if they owned property. He made sure that they were protected from persecution, all kinds of things like that going on. Constantine heard that there were some differences of opinion on key doctrines. Constantine said, okay, let's get all the leaders of these churches, all the important leaders of these churches together, and settle this kind of stuff. So he got together the bishops, the bishops, the head guys of places like Ephesus, and Rome, obviously, and Constantinople, obviously, and and in Egypt, and in Alexandria, Egypt, and got all these major church leaders together and said, okay, now I want you guys to thrash out some of these things like the deity of Christ and come up with a statement that describes, that defines orthodoxy on this particular topic. These were, uh, and so these, these councils that got together um, wrote the Christian, what we call creeds, these statements of belief on these various things, on these various doctrines. This all happened in the space of his lifetime. This was incredible, this flip. All right, here's what happens. People like power. It's sinful, but people like power. And so the bishops of these major cities started jockeying for influence with with Constantine and seeing what they could do about all of this and the two big bishops the guys at the top of the heap were the bishop of Rome and the bishop of Constantinople you can understand that huh that's not surprising these two guys and their successors this didn't happen in in one life this happened over a period of decades these the bishops of these two cities as as they as they moved along huh these bishops fought with each other for influence in the roman government And who has the ear of the emperor? Long after Constantine has died, who has the ear of the emperor? Because the next guy didn't like Rome in the summer any better than Constantine did. And what happened was eventually this led to what is called the great, excuse me, the great schism of 1054. Okay, back up. Constantine was the early 300s. We're now all the way down to the year 1054. And there was a disagreement between the Bishop of of Constantinople and the Bishop of Rome about the Holy Spirit. It was it was kind of a silly little thing. But see, it wasn't about that. It was really about who's the more powerful, who can carry the day. And this was just the latest turf war. This thing about the Holy Spirit, this was just an excuse for them to push the limits. And eventually, they broke apart. They decided their differences were, they, they, they called each other bad names, and all. They, food fight, it was, it was terrible. So, what you ended up with was the Eastern Church, the church in Constantinople, and the Western Church, the church in Rome. The Eastern Church was led by the Bishop of Constantinople. The Western Church in Rome was led by the Bishop of Rome the Eastern Church, led by the Bishop of Constantinople, said, we're the ones who are right. We're the ones that have the truth. We are the ones who are, listen, orthodox. We're correct. We're true to the truth. We're orthodox. And it became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church church. You can see where this is headed, huh? So now you have the, all of these Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches, and there is the Romanian Eastern Orthodox. There's the Russian Eastern Orthodox. There is now the Ukrainian Orthodox church. Okay. Over in Rome, the Bishop of Rome says, no, we are the one true church. They're heretics. They're outside. I know they call themselves Orthodox, but we are the one and only true church. Do you know what one word expresses that, the only true? It is the word Catholic. The word Catholic, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says the sole one, the only right one, the universal one. And they said, we are the Roman Catholic Church. So Eastern Orthodox is located in the east and we're right. The Roman Catholic Church is located in Rome and we are the universal church. There is the first great split in our tree. So, picture a branch going, a huge branch going off to the right, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and a huge branch going off to the left, the Roman Catholic Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church um, didn't die, but it didn't prosper. It didn't do particularly well. The Roman Catholic Church moved out and into Europe and, and all, and so the Western world. All right, Rome, uh, the, the Western Church, the Western world was primarily Roman Catholic. In fact, you couldn't you couldn't find uh, Eastern Orthodox believers hidden under the bed in in all of Europe, or Scandinavia, or 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 they were strictly in Eastern Europe and Russia. Okay, so what happens now is we've got a break not just in the political alignment of the church but in the dogma of the church. If you've seen, if you can picture an Eastern Orthodox priest, he looks a lot like, in his uniform, he looks a lot like the Roman Catholic priest. And a lot of the doctrines, a lot of the dogma of the Eastern Orthodox Church is the same as the Roman Catholic Church. That's because those items of dogma predate 1054 when the split took place the dogma that emerged in those respective churches after 1054 is different. So, for example, the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the priests can't marry, they are celibate. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they can, always have been able to. Why? Because that particular item of dogma in the Roman Catholic Church came after 1054, I'd, I don't remember what Pope said, but some Pope said, no, you can't be married because you're married to the church, so you can't have an earthly wife. That happened after 1054. It never happened over here in the Eastern Orthodox Church, so their priests can marry. I know where I want to be if I'm going to be in one of those two groups. Now, what we do is we follow our left branch out, our big Roman Catholic branch, and we discover that that it after 1054, it continues to develop doctrines that become part of church dogma. We're going to talk a little bit more about those in a couple of minutes. Until we get to the year 1517, we're 500 years huh, after the Great Schism. In 1517, in January, all there is in Europe, all there is, is the Roman Catholic Church. They are the only game in town, and their dogma is truth, and nobody argues with it. All of the universities are Roman Catholic universities. uh, Every every city had, every village had a Roman Catholic church with a Roman Catholic priest and and Roman Catholic bishops and all the rest of it, okay? So until October of 1517, when a guy by the name of Martin Luther nails a memorandum to the door of the church of the town of Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest he was a professor at the at the university, the Roman Catholic University in Wittenberg. He had been told to prepare to teach a class in the fall semester on the Book of Romans. He started reading the Book of Romans, and he started reading a bunch of things that did not fit Roman Catholic dogma. And he posted this, this uh, 95 things I want to talk about here. Here are some discussion questions. Let's talk about these. And among them, he challenged some Roman Catholic dogma. Well, that started the Protestant Reformation. Listen to the word Protestant, those who protest. It started the movement of those who protested Roman Catholic dogma. It was a reformation because what Martin Luther said is, we've got to get back to the Bible. If it's not found in the Bible, we can't have it as dogma. It's at the top of the pyramid. We can't have it as dogma. The, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Reformation. They protested that we need to reform to a New Testament church. Now now we've got a second split, right? We had the split down um, between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. Now we've got a split between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. If you follow this next branch out, this Protestant Reformation, you will find this thing explodes like some crazy oleander bush with branches going everywhere. Some of those separations took place over doctrine, over dogma. A a, a group, um, now, on a much smaller scale than Martin Luther, but a group says, no, no, this what you're telling us is not biblical. We can't go there. It might have been infant baptism. It might have been the role of women. It might have been uh, who can sing in the choir. It doesn't matter. But they split and split and split and split until you get up to the top. And goodness, there are a whole bunch of little, little tiny branches all over the place. Some of those have nothing at all to do with dogma. Some of them are cultural. Some of them are geographical. Um, when I say some of them are cultural and geographical, it's like, think of the United States. Down south, they have certain traditions. Up north, the traditions will be very different. You put those two congregations together in the same place, and they're going to fight about what you serve at a church potluck, and eventually they're going to have two different organizations. So not all of these were about dogma, but the that's why the study of dogmatic theology where are you on this tree what branch are you attached to and do you even know what that branch believes so i've gone to these we have gone to these churches most of them have a get to know us thing and it may be one of them they served us pizza Um, anybody that wanted to learn more about Church X, you can stay next Sunday after our worship service and we'll serve you pizza and uh, you can get to know who we are as a congregation and we can get to know you. If you're new here, this is a great way for you to learn about our church. They served us bad pizza and uh, it it was kind of a disaster. And frankly, what we learned was, "Uh uh-oh, we got problems here. Some of them... um, have, uh, there was one where we went to the, uh, the house, the pastor's house and, and he likes to bake too, which I thought was kind of cool. Okay. This guy's a good guy. He likes to bake. And he had baked cookies and brownies. We had uh, soft drinks and coffee, if you wanted it and cookies and brownies. Um, and there was the pastor and his wife, cause it was at his home and his kids who were supposed to be in bed that came down the stairs in their pajamas. And, uh, the guy that was their, their tech guy, runs all the tech ministries, and his wife, who happened to be the music pastor of the church. And and then there were four couples. We were one of the four couples, and these two staff couples, the pastor and his wife, and and the tech and, and music husband and wife, okay? And so they talked a little bit about the history of the church. It's a church that's about seven years old, and some of their core beliefs, and he didn't use the word dogma, but he could have. These are our core beliefs. And at the end, he says, um, do you have any questions? And, and there was this silence. So then I decided, okay, listen, you know, they don't know me. I don't know them. And, and frankly, this is important to us. So I said, okay. After, after a period of awkward silence, I said, I got some questions. Okay, what do you want to know? I said, where are you on the Arminian Calvinism spectrum? And he answered. He said, uh, we're Calvinistic in, in our beliefs. I knew what that meant. He knew what that meant. Fine. We moved on. I said, okay. And it was that quick. I said, where are you on the dispensational covenant spectrum? And he said, I myself am covenant in my theology. However, we got a guy on staff who's a dispensationalist. So do with that, whatever. And and his answer was that brief. I said, okay, where are you on the egalitarian complementarian spectrum? And he said, "Uh, strictly complementarian, which is why, and and here he looked at the rest of the people, he says, which is why you will never see a woman pastor here or hear a woman preach. Okay, fine. We're, we're, We're good. Um, and then he said, and, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'll shut up now. He said, okay, anybody else have any questions? And at this point, the tech guy who's on staff at the church says, well, oh, not after that I don't. Which is his way of saying he had no clue what I was talking about. Listen, Listen, folks, these are key, these are bottom of the pyramid um, items of of doctrine, of dogma. And and the guy on staff didn't know, and his wife didn't know. That was clear because she's nodding at what her husband just said. And I thought, wow, this is something about the church. The pastor can answer these questions, but apparently the the staff can't. Um, And then, like I said, there's the church we attended where water baptism is a quote, prerequisite for participating in communion. I'll bet you there isn't maybe what, two or three people in that entire church that knows that that is church dogma there. How would they know? It's never said. What do you know about your church's dogma? Have you read your church's doctrinal statement? Okay. Um, If we're going to prioritize church dogma, we're going to start with matters of salvation. What is necessary in order to be a child of God and have your future eternally secure in heaven? Okay, that is, as in fact, Martin Luther's big issue. When he put up those 95 theses on the church at Wittenberg door, on the door at the church at Wittenberg, Um, those that had to do with doctrine, some of them had to do with practice, those that had to do with doctrine had to do primarily with the doctrine of salvation. Why? Because if there's a bottom to the bottom of the period, that's the bottom of the bottom of the, uh, I'm sorry, of the triangle. That is the bottom of the bottom of the triangle, doctrines regarding salvation. And so in the early years of the Protestant Reformation, that's where the war was. That's where the conflict was. What must I do to be saved? after that comes eternal destiny. If I am not saved, what happens to me? If I am saved, what happens to me? Then as you you continue to move um, towards the top of the uh, um, pyramid, you get P's and P's. You get policies and practices of the local church. How should the local church be organized? Is there membership? What can members do that non-members can't do? Those kinds of things. Now, just in the last What decade or so, there are matters that nobody ever imagined would be on the triangle, in the triangle. For example, uh, marriage and human sexuality. Man, when I was growing up, nobody would have guessed that would even, you wouldn't even say those words. Those were dirty words, you wouldn't say them in church. And now the church has to talk about them and has to decide where they are in that congregation's pyramid. Uh, And and some of them are doing that and some of them aren't. And so the one I talked about where they have things that they hold loosely and then things that are core beliefs, um, human sexuality was one of those things. Again, there may in fact be a difference between a given church's dogma and a given individual within that church and what they believe and don't assume uh, that they agree. Uh, The perfect illustration of this is the Roman Catholic Church right now. Uh, Three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, at least as I'm recording this, not necessarily when you're listening to this, the Pope said that priests can bless the unions of homosexual couples, can marry them, and the blessing that he gives can have any association with any wedding ceremony, but priests can bless the union of a uh, same-sex couple. Man, has that caused an explosion. I don't know if you're aware of it, if you're watching the news, but there are lots of bishops and cardinals and priests that are just apoplectic about this. They're going bonkers. How can the priests? Uh, how can the Pope say that? That's all wrong. And, and they're going to have to deal with this because the Pope has said, we're, we're adding this to church dogma. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit for you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are three sources for dogma in the Roman Catholic Church. Dogma comes from the Bible. That's one of them. Dogma comes from the traditional, the historical views and comments of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. That's number two, church history, Roman Catholic Church history. Um, and then the third is what the Pope says. When the Pope, I I talked about this last week, when the Pope puts on his his Pope clothes and stands in the Pope room, I'm sorry, he sits in the Pope room in the Pope chair and says, this is what is, that's dogma. That is ipsissima verba. That is the Word of God. When he speaks ex cathedra, that is the Word of God, okay? And interestingly enough, uh, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that trumps one and two. When um, church tr- uh, church tradition trumps what the Bible said, because the Roman Catholics believe that ch- that the church historically interprets the Bible. You're a layperson; you can't do that. It is up to the church to say what the Bible means. And if the Roman Catholic Church has to- has historically said that this verse teaches that, then then that's what that Bible teaches. You can't just read the Bible and say this is it. If church history tells you, Roman Catholic church history tells you, this is what is. And if the Pope, he trumps the bottom. So there you go. There's the source of Roman Catholic dogma. The evangelical church, particularly the evangelical fundamentalist church, says scripture trumps everything. Scripture is the final authority on all matters of doctrine and practice. In closing, I'm going to use a couple more words here that you may not be familiar with orthodoxy produces orthopraxy. Heterodoxy produces heteropraxy. Ortho, as we said with the orthodox church, ortho means correct, means right. Orthodoxy, correct doctrine, produces orthopraxy, correct living. Heterodoxy, other doctrine, other than correct. Heterodoxy produces heteropraxy. There's so much more I want to talk about on this. You should see what I've skipped over in my uh, pages of notes um, as, I, as I prepared this particular episode, but we don't have time. I, I hope now you're familiar with the word dogma, you understand what it means and why it's important, and I hope this will motivate you to go carefully read your church's what we believe statement, your statement, um, your church's statement about dogma, and think about that and compare it to Scripture. Um, and what's in the bottom part of your church's pyramid. So there you have it, folks. Uh, there's, Like I said, there's so much more. We just can't do it. So God bless.